Uh, let's open in a word of prayer, and we'll get started. Father, we're grateful for today, and grateful for the freedom that we have in this country to to meet and to study and to celebrate the person of Jesus Christ. I do pray, Lord, for the illuminating ministry of the Spirit. You did say in the upper room that the Spirit would come and guide you into all truth. And we do need that ministry today, Lord. We need it in the first hour as we study Thessalonians. We need it in the second hour as we study Genesis. All of the kids groups and youth groups meeting need it as they are under their different teachers studying the Bible. And so in preparation for that ministry, Lord, we do understand that we can do things as Christians by re- sometimes by uh, commission, sometimes by omission, things we do, things we don't do, but we have a tendency to go back to our sin natures, and when we do that, we don't lose salvation, but we do forfeit our any moment or moment-by-moment moment <clears throat> fellowship and enjoyment of you, and when that happens, the ministry of the Spirit, by way of illumination, really can't have his fullness that he wants, and so we're going to take a few moments privately just to confess uh, personal sins to you, if need be, so that we can receive today unhindered from your ministry of illumination. We're thankful, Lord, for the promise of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, which says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank You, Lord, that Your provision for us is so comprehensive that not only does it bring us to salvation in Christ Jesus, but when we do sin as Your children, it You have provided for us in such a way that broken fellowship can be restored. And so thank you for what you've given us. And um, we lift up all of these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. Well, if you could locate the book of 2 Thessalonians. If you hit Timothy, you've gone too far. So you'll see Colossians and then 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, and then Timothy. But we want 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. We are just barely into, believe it or not, our teaching on 2 Thessalonians, having completed 1 Thessalonians a few weeks back. The first lesson, we sort of went through some introduction to the book, who wrote it, Paul, who's the audience, the Thessalonian Christians, where was it written from, Corinth, when was it written, A.D. 51, very early letter. Why was it written, they were confused on the end times. I'm glad that doesn't happen today. One of the reasons they were confused on the end times is they got a forged communication from Paul saying they were in the tribulation. The book basically has three parts. Part one, commendation. He's commending them for their growth despite persecution. Chapter two, he corrects them about their faulty understanding of the end times. And then chapter three, he deals with the consequences of a bad theology. So commendation, I hope you like the letter C. Commendation, chapter 1. Correction, chapter 2. Consequences, chapter 3. The book basically is about the balance between waiting on the Lord. Are you guys waiting on the Lord? Um, 
the Lord can come back at any second. So living your life as if the Lord could hap- could come back at any second, and yet at the same time not getting crazy and weird about it. So a lot of people will set dates, they'll quit their jobs, because the Lord's coming back, right? So this is a great book on a balance between working and waiting. And the purpose of the book is correcting their doctrine, because their doctrine is off, their practice is off. So last time we were together, we studied, we started studying chapter one. We made it all the way through verse four. Can you believe it? That must be a record of, of ours. Um, there's a reminder of grace, verses one and two, verses three and four. He gives thanks for them and their continued growth, spiritually speaking, in spite of persecution. And then chapter 5, he gets into the subject of the kingdom. The kingdom is going to last a thousand years. So I'm going to try not to take a thousand years to explain this this passage. So verse 5, he says, This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom for which indeed you are suffering. Um, this verse kind of obviously picks up where the prior one ended. If you go back into verse 4, you'll see persecutions and afflictions. So they obviously were not in the kingdom when this verse was given because in the kingdom there's not going to be persecutions and afflictions against God's people. But the fact that you're going through these things, Paul says... You're counted worthy of your identity as a citizen of the future kingdom. In other words, this is what's normal. Your citizenship is not here. Your citizenship is in the future kingdom. And that's why here you're living in enemy territory, Satan's world. And that's why you just really don't fit in here in this world. Uh, That's why the world system is against you. This is why you're being persecuted. So you represent kingdom values of a future coming kingdom on enemy territory. And the world is reacting against you. So his point is the fact that you're experiencing these things now is indicative of the fact that you're a citizen of the coming kingdom. So we need to spend a little uh, time, if we could, on this word kingdom. The Greek word is basileia. We're kind of living in a time period today in evangelical Bible interpretation where people see that word kingdom and they just grab it and they pour into it whatever meaning that they want. It's a lot of people say, well, it sounds great in a worship song. Let's throw it in there. Um, let's put it on our church marquee and vision statement. You know, let's let's have uh, conferences called Kingdom Builders. Uh, I just saw something that came up on my social media uh, that I was looking at, my news feed, that's the word I'm looking for, where it mentions uh, two very prominent Christians, and it said something like, um, let's celebrate these two, two great men who have played such a role in expanding the kingdom. Well, if you're on the left politically, people read into kingdom social justice concepts. Uh, if you're in the right, on the right politically, people read into the word kingdom, whatever their vision is for the United States. And so it just kind of goes on and on that everybody is throwing this word kingdom around and hardly anybody is explaining what it means. The truth of the matter is when you see a word like that, basileia, for example, undefined, you are not given permission as a Bible reader just to pour your own understanding into that word. The fact that it's undefined indicates that it has to be defined by what God already said about it. 
if there was some kind of new definition of the kingdom, um, I guess you'd be free to follow God's new definition. But God doesn't say kingdom. Here's what it really means. He just says kingdom, end of statement. So the expectation is, because the Bible is a book of progressive revelation, you would pour into that word, basileia, truths that are already revealed about it in the Old Testament. So one of the greatest things you could ever learn as a Christian is, as I indicated earlier, is the Bible is a book of progressive revelation, meaning subsequent scripture never changes what initial scripture said about any topic. The only thing that it does, subsequent scripture, is that it adds meaning, nuance, clarity, details. But it doesn't change what was originally said. So, very early on in the Bible, you'll run into Genesis 3, verse 15. Uh, That's the first presentation of the gospel that we have anywhere in scripture there's coming one from the seed of the woman who is going to take serpents, the serpent's head or Satan's head and crush it. And as you keep moving through the Bible, what you'll discover is subsequent scripture doesn't change Genesis 3 verse 15. It adds more clarity to it. You get to Micah 5 verse 2 and it's like, oh, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. You get to Isaiah 7, verse 14. Oh, he's going to be born of a virgin. Um, You get to Psalm 22, verses 16 through 18. Oh, his hands and his feet are going to be pierced. In other words, what's happening as you're moving through the Bible is the Bible is not rewriting. It's not saying something like, oh, by the way, all that stuff about a Messiah coming, you know, just fooling, that's not going to happen. Subsequent scripture never does that. And the reason why subsequent scripture never does that is because it relates to God's character. He cannot lie. So he can't say something in one part of the Bible that undoes what he says in another part of the Bible, or else what God originally said was a lie. So the Muslims uh, follow a doctrine called abrogation. Uh, As you go through Islamic teachings, the Quran, etc., they have a set of verses that they employ when they're in the minority in a civilization, and they're very loving verses. And then when they their population reaches a certain level, they go from house of peace to house of war, and their whole character changes, and they become very um, aggressive, very violent, very belligerent. And then at that point, you say to them, well, what about all of the nice verses? And by the way, this is exactly what Muhammad did. He had one set of texts when he was in the minority and another set of texts when he was in the majority. Once they move from house of peace to house of war, I think it's lower house to upper house, if I have that right, you say to them, well, what happened to all the nice verses in the Quran? And they say, oh, those have been abrogated. That's their expression, abrogation. In other words, texts set B have now canceled text set A, abrogation. Christianity knows of no such doctrine. We do not believe in abrogation. Latter scripture cannot undo what prior scripture says. So whatever you're doing with the word kingdom, particularly when it's undefined like this, Second Thessalonians 1 verse 5, it has, it has to harmonize with what God already said in the Old Testament. That's why it's left undefined. God expects us to be readers of the Old Testament and already understand what the word kingdom communicates before we even get to New Testament passages like 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. So with all of that being said, when you see the word kingdom, what should you be thinking about? You should be thinking about the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ, 
which will eventually be replaced after a thousand years with the eternal state. And this is not something that I came up with. I mean, this is what the Old Testament unveils as you move through it. So the kingdom is established by God, Deuteronomy 2, verse 44. In other words, God is bringing his kingdom. Kingdom is not going to come through human agency. I don't care how many conferences you go to that entitle themselves kingdom builders. Okay, Nothing is being built right now for the kingdom. Jesus is going to establish his kingdom after his second advent when he comes back at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. If you want to be on board with what Jesus is doing now, he's building his church. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That's what Jesus is doing now, but he is not building the kingdom. The kingdom, which when it comes, will be eternal. Um, it'll last a thousand years. I have all the verses there in parenthesis where you can see where I'm getting these from. And then after that, it will move into the eternal state. Uh, it will represent the direct rule of Jesus Christ on planet Earth. You'll be able to travel to Jerusalem and actually see Jesus in Jerusalem. He might even let you shake his hand. He won't even ask for a campaign contribution. It's something that happens on the earth, Zechariah 14, verse 9. So it's not some kind of, you know, all, all these people saying, you know, the kingdom is in my heart and all these things. Well, that's that's not what the Old Testament says. It's the time period when the land promises from Egypt to Iraq will be in total fulfillment for the Jewish people. It's a time when the nation of Israel will be preeminent again. She will be head over the nations, which obviously isn't happening now because Israel is in the way of world progress, according to the globalists. There will actually be a brick-and-mortar functioning temple with animal sacrifices during that time period. David is going to be raised from the dead. Uh, people always tell me, well, we're in the kingdom now. I go, great, can I go meet David? Because David is going to be raised from the dead and he's uh, going to be actually governing Israel again while Jesus is governing the whole earth. It'll be a time of righteousness. Have you watched TV lately? Do you see a lot of righteousness? Um this is going to be universal righteousness. It's a time when the curse will be curtailed dramatically, where if someone dies at the age of 100, everybody's going to kind of sit around and say, wow, what a shame, such a young man died. There's going to be global peace, Isaiah 2, verse 4. By the way, you might know this, maybe not. Isaiah 2, verse 4 is inscribed on United Nations property in New York. So they think they're going to bring in this peace. We have a little problem with that because there's actually been more wars since the founding of the United Nations than before. There's going to be a time of great economic prosperity on the earth. Terms like unemployment, underemployment, inflation, layoffs. Uh, no one, we don't even have vocabulary for that anymore. There's going to be profound changes in the topography of the world. Right down to the Dead Sea coming back to life. Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12. There's going to be a river that's going to come out of the millennial temple in Jerusalem. It's going to flow into the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is going to teem with life. Why do we call the Dead Sea the Dead Sea? Because everything in the sea is dead because the salt content destroys it, and that's why you can float in the Dead Sea. I've actually floated in the Dead Sea. I figured I'd be the first guy to sink, but no, it works works pretty good. And then, as I mentioned before, there's lifeguards on the beach, and I'm always wondering, what do these guys do? Um, so I've got my retirement plans already. I've got my application filled out for a lifeguard on the Dead Sea. I just read the paper all day. 
Um, there's going to be immediate answers to prayer. I mean, before you even get the words out of your mouth, immediately it's going to be answered. So that that's just a snapshot of what we mean by the kingdom. And then not only does the does the Old Testament reveal the what question about the kingdom, it reveals the when question. When is the kingdom going to come? Well, the book of Daniel is very, very clear in terms of laying out our chronology. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream in Daniel 2 where he saw the various empires that would trample down Israel from that point in time until the coming of the kingdom. First would come Babylon, the head of gold. Then would come Medo-Persia, the chest and arms of silver. Then would come the belly and thighs of bronze, Greece. Then would come the legs of iron, which would represent Rome, probably the eastern and the western divisions um, of the ancient Roman Empire. And then the prophets, of course, could not see the age of grace or the church age that we're living in, because our age is a mystery. So in between the ankles and the feet, is a gap there of about 2,000 years. That's what we're living in. So where are we today? We're between the ankles and the feet. We should start a church. This is the first church of the ankles and foot in between stage. And then is going to come these feet mixed with iron and clay, uh, ten toes. It's going to be some kind of ten region ten king confederation that the Antichrist eventually is going to take over. So the feet of iron and clay, that's what's actually being built today. God's kingdom is not being built. Satan's kingdom is being built. And Satan will have his day in the sun for about three and a half years. But then at the end of that seven-year tribulation period, second three and a half years is going to come God's kingdom. God's kingdom is that stone cut without human hands that shatters the feet of the statue, which causes the whole thing to fall, and it's crumbled laying on the threshing floor there. This is all in Daniel 2, by the way. And then the wind blows away the pieces, and the stone cut without human hands grows and grows and grows till it fills the earth. I mean, it's just a very simple chronology. And the chronology reveals that going to the very bottom of the statue, Satan gets his kingdom first, and then it's going to be overthrown by Jesus. So if I'm going to a conference entitled, you know, Kingdom Builders, or if I'm in some kind of marquee featuring me and saying this man has done more than any other to expand the kingdom of God on the earth. Frankly, I don't want that marquee written about me because that means I'm building the wrong kingdom. Satan's kingdom is being built right now. Some would call it the, the new world order, whatever name you want to give it. And I think they're getting pretty close to finishing the job. That's the way they talk. They talk about world government all the time you know, the World Economic Forum and, and all of these sorts of things. Daniel saw the same information in chapter 7 that Nebuchadnezzar saw in chapter 2, but Nebuchadnezzar saw it as a beautiful statue because it looked great to Nebuchadnezzar. He was one of the oppressors. But Daniel saw the same information in Daniel 7, and he saw it in the form of four ferocious beasts so Daniel saw it from the Jewish perspective being trampled down Nebuchadnezzar saw it from the Gentile perspective the one who's doing the trampling so the head of gold would correlate with um, the lion Daniel 7 Babylon the chest and arms of silver would correlate with the bear Medo-Persia the belly and thighs of bronze would correlate with the leopard, Daniel 7, Greece. The terrifying beast would correlate with Rome. And then at the very end of the vision, Daniel saw um, some kind of revived Roman Empire with ten horns. 
the ten horns equal the ten toes. The ten king confederation of the Antichrist. And then Daniel kept looking and he saw the Antichrist being deposed after three and a half years. Daniel 7.25 And then he saw the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days. Son of Man, Jesus, Ancient of Days, God the Father establishing their kingdom on the earth which will last forever. So the problem with your modern Bible reader is they come to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 5 and they don't have any of this information in their head. And the reason we don't have that information in our head is we don't really take reading the Bible that seriously. So most people look at the word kingdom there in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 5 and they just pour into it, you know, some weird idea. But that's not how you approach the Bible. Because the Bible is a book of progressive revelation, the expectation is that when you see the word kingdom, you already have all of this data in your mind. And that's what you pour into the meaning of the word. If God wanted you to do something different with the word, he would redefine it, which he doesn't do here. He doesn't add any new uh, nuance to it. So this kingdom then that he's talking about is obviously future. Even as the Antichrist kingdom is being built right now, at the end of the church age, there's going to be a rapture. You guys looking forward to that? I don't have a single problem in my life. The rapture wouldn't fix, as the saying goes. And the body of Christ will be taken from the earth. Satan um, gets his seven years, really three and a half years, And Israel is converted during that time period. Jesus comes back to rescue Israel. And only when Jesus comes back to rescue Israel at the end of the seven-year tribulation period does the kingdom of God formally begin. So your Old Testament answers the question, not just what is the kingdom, but when is the kingdom coming? doesn't just answer the what question, it answers the when question. So with all of that being said, what is Paul saying here? This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you're suffering. This is why you're suffering. Because you are a son of the kingdom. Jesus, describing us in Matthew 13, verse 38, calls us the sons of the kingdom. What is a son? Well, Paul later says, if a son, then a, an heir. That's what a son is. You're, you're the inheritor of the estate. So that's who we are today. We are the sons of the kingdom. In other words, it's like being America's ambassador to Iran. You're representing American values on foreign soil. You're not there to bring in regime change. Although that with Iran wouldn't be a bad idea, but uh, that's not your job. You're representing America in another country. That's your identity as a Christian. You're representing the values of the coming kingdom in Satan's world because Satan hasn't been deposed yet. So... That's why we're called salt and light to the culture, different things like that. This is why uh, we don't really fit in here. This is why the world reacts against us, just as uh, Iran would react against American values. You're, You're dealing over there with a country with a completely different set of values. That's who we are. We are sons of the kingdom. And it's very clear in the Bible that this kingdom, the way I'm describing it, is future. How did Jesus teach the disciples to pray? Matthew 6, verse 10. Thy kingdom come. That's a very strange way to pray if it's already here. In Acts 14 and verse 22. It says, this is what Paul said 
on his uh, first missionary journey into southern Galatia. He says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, not through a couple tribulations, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So before the kingdom comes, as long as we're living in the devil's world, um, you can expect many tribulations. I mean, that would be normal since we represent God's value system in the devil's world. And, and this, is, this is why Paul is saying, if you look at it from this perspective, you ought to rejoice in your sufferings because they prove that your values are different than this world's values, and that's more evidence of who you, who you belong to. So how do you look at life's um, problems? You look at it as God is preparing you for your future kingdom role when you will wield authority. Everything that's happening right now in your life is molding your character, shaping your character um, in such a way that when the kingdom materializes, God will take you and put you into a position of authority. And the degree of authority that you wield, because the parable of the minas, Luke 19, talks about one man given five cities, one man given ten cities. So obviously... Um, God is giving different degrees of authority. The degree of authority that you wield largely depends upon your willingness to cooperate with God now in your trials and see them as God preparing you for your future. If you just become angry at God and you don't let your trials make you better, you just let them make you bitter, then you're forfeiting an opportunity to have your character molded in such a way so that the kingdom of God can come and you could be given a dominant role in that kingdom. Um, we are in the book of Genesis in the main service. Last time I checked, one of these days we're going to get to Joseph's life. Hopefully this side of the rapture. And you see this very clearly in Joseph's life. From age 17 to age 30, everything went wrong. From a human perspective, right down to his brothers betraying him, leaving him for dead in a pit, him being sold into slavery. I mean, it doesn't get much worse than that for a young person. And he probably went through all of that stuff. And even when things went right for a season because of his stand with Potiphar's wife and different things, uh, the suffering just continued and he just kept getting mistreated. And as Joseph was going through all that, it probably didn't make any sense to him. But at age 30, it started to make sense. Because at age 30, he is elevated to second in command in Egypt. Just like you're going to be elevated to second in command over the millennial kingdom. Because Jesus is the ruler of the millennial kingdom and he wants to use you uh, under his delegated authority. And suddenly everything that Joseph went through, he probably understood, oh, well, th- that was all, you know, preparing me for my current role. And probably the trials that he went through seemed just like a distant memory at that point. Uh, that's why the Bible makes all of these statements about our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's to be unveiled. Uh, I mean, you'll get to, you'll get into your role in the millennial kingdom and everything will make sense. It's like, oh, that's why this happened or that happened in my life, which at the time I didn't understand. Um, and so what was God doing during that time? He was molding our character. He was asking us to trust him because he knows what he's doing. And then the millennial kingdom comes and you're in authority and you say, gosh, Lord, I feel, I feel so dumb. I feel like such a fool because I second guessed you so many times when I could have just trusted you. Um, so anyway, that's, that's the big picture of the kingdom. Revelation chapter one, verse six calls us, the church, a kingdom of priests. 
It says he has made us to be a kingdom of priests. To his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You don't have to go to a priest to confess your sins because Jesus is your high priest and you're like a sub-priest. You've got a direct connection to God. Not that I don't mind hearing your troubles, but you really don't have to go to me with your troubles. You can go right to Jesus as the ultimate priest, and you're a sub-priest. And people say, oh, well, it says here he has made us to be a kingdom of priests. I guess we're ruling in the kingdom now, right? No, because you have to look at all of the scripture on a given topic. Revelation chapter 1 is followed by Revelation 5. Isn't that profound? Revelation 5 comes after Revelation chapter 1. So if I'm just reading Revelation chapter 1, I've got incomplete data on a topic. I've got to factor in the same terminology over in Revelation 5. And in Revelation chapter 5 verse 10, it picks up on this metaphor that Jesus has made us a kingdom of priests. And it says, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. Now watch this. They will reign. See that? The Greek word for reign, you see it there in brackets. It's the same word we get the word basileia, kingdom. Uh, There it's the verb form where it's describing we will reign and the verb in the greek tense is is in the is in the future tense so we're not reigning right now any more than joseph was reigning from age 17 to age 30 and by the way where are we going to reign i mean it's pretty clear they will reign up in the clouds oh doesn't say that upon the earth so your future in Jesus Christ is an earthly reign. Yes, you'll be in the Father's house for seven years after the rapture. But the Greek word that's used to describe the Father's house is not the word for mansions. I I realize the King James Bible translates it that way. That's a mistranslation. Uh, The Father's house, the word that's used for it, John 14, 1 through 3, is the word for an inn, a watch house. Now, I I think it'll be nice. It's not going to be like Motel 6 or something, you know. (laughs) But the reason it can't be too nice, I mean, if you get up there and you've got the tennis courts and you've got your golf course and you've got your fine dining Oh, I got my masseuse appointment at two. I mean, if you have all that stuff, then at the end of seven years, when Jesus says, okay, let's go back down to the earth to rule and reign, you're going to say, I don't want to go. I like it up here. So it can't, I don't think it's going to be like a slum or something, but it can't be too nice. That's my point, because your destiny as a Christian is not to stay there over a seven year time period. There's important things that are going to happen there. But your destiny is to come back with Jesus because at that point you're married. And where he goes, you go. It's no longer bridegroom, it's husband, wife. And he is very clear he's coming back to planet Earth to rule and reign in the thousand years. And you have to be with him. I have to be with him. And so that's why we have these uh, this future kingdom role. So Paul says your current trials are just preparing you for that. That's all. In fact, your current trials prove you're on the right side of things. Because if you weren't going through trials, you'd fit in right with the world system. And that wouldn't be good because that might mean you don't represent values of a coming kingdom. The fact that you represent the values of a coming kingdom is evidenced by the fact that you're having problems in the here and now. But don't get too discouraged about the nasty now and now because God is actually using that to prepare you for your future kingdom role. 
And then he goes on in verse 6, and he says, For after all, it is only, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So what had happened is the enemies of Christianity, in this case they were unbelieving Jews in Thessalonica, had turned on Paul because Paul went into the synagogue in Thessalonica. You'll see all of this in Acts 17. He reasoned with the Jews in the synagogue for three weeks. He tried to convince them that Jesus is the fulfillment of their own scripture, Hebrew Bible, and they wanted really nothing to do with it. And so if Paul says, fine, I'll go preach my message to the Gentiles. And he goes into the Gentile, amongst the Gentiles in Thessalonica, and he's got droves and droves of conversions under God's power. The unbelieving Jews didn't like that. They didn't like his success. So they attacked him, they persecuted him, they drove him out of Thessalonica down into Corinth. And then they weren't really happy with the fact that Paul left. Now they've got to deal with all of of Paul's converts, and so they started persecuting Paul's converts. And that's why Paul is writing to them. He's explaining to them why these things have happened to him. And his converts would probably say, you know, being baby Christians with an incomplete New Testament, they only had three New Testament books at this point that Paul had written. Yeah, but God, what are you going to do with all of these persecutors? And Paul's response, God's response through Paul to them is basically saying, don't worry about it. When Jesus comes back, he's going to deal with all of them. In fact, he's going to deal with them in violent retribution. And that would sort of encourage these baby Christians who are being persecuted. You know, that God is keeping a tally, God is keeping a record, God knows what the score is, and God is going to deal with all of these godless unbelievers, in this case, unbelieving Jews, at the second advent of Jesus. That's why verse 6 says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with afflictions those who afflict you. Those who afflict you will be afflicted, afflicted themselves. In other words, if they don't come under grace through conversion to Christianity, faith alone and Christ alone, God says, I'm keeping a record of all the things that they've done to you, and I personally will repay them. Reminds me a little bit of Genesis 15, verse 6. Here, Paul has switched from kingdom talk to destiny of the persecutors talk, verses 6 through 10. And it reminds me of Genesis 15, verse 16, where it says, In the fourth generation they will return here. In other words, Israel will come back into the land under Joshua and eradicate the Canaanites. Then in the fourth generation, that's about 400 years, they will return here for the wrongdoing, some of the translations say iniquity, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So 400 years from now, Joshua is going to come back into this land as God is speaking to Abraham, and he's going to take all of these Canaanites, including the Amorite, and he's going to completely wipe them out. Well, why doesn't God do that today? Well, because their iniquity is not full yet. In other words, God is allowing their iniquity to reach a certain point before judgment comes. And once uh, that point comes, nothing can help any human being if they're not under the protective grace of Jesus Christ. So it's a, it's a statement that God knows who the Amorites are. He knows their wickedness. And, th- and if I described to you everything I knew about Canaanite society in patriarchal times, it would sound like a pornographic movie. 
the stuff that they were involved in was so vile, you can't even talk about it in a church setting. Read Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, and you'll see some of the stuff they were involved in. Kind of sounds like, should I even say this, some of the stuff some of our public schools are doing to kids, to be frank with you, and I won't go down that road. But eventually, God's keeping a record. Their iniquity will be complete. And then Joshua will come in 400 years later. I hope you see the grace of God here. He gave these people 400 years to repent, which is an awful long time. But when Joshua comes in, they'll be completely and totally eradicated. But I'm keeping a record. Paul the Apostle in the book of Romans, chapter 2, verse 5 says this about the enemies of God. He says, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath. You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. It's, it's like water behind a, uh, behind a dam. And eventually the water becomes so, you know, voluminous that the dam starts to break. That's what the wrath of God is like being poured forth on unsaved people that are doing all kinds of wickedness. Um, and they have no idea that God is keeping a record. So that's sort of an encouragement to these baby Christians who are being persecuted What are you going to do with these persecutors, Lord? God is basically saying in verse 7, verse 6, excuse me, don't worry about it, I've got that covered. And then we come to verse 7. And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord will be revealed from heaven, with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Now, we take the coming of Christ and we divide it into two phases. First, he comes in the rapture, pre-70th week of Daniel. Then he'll come at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. And one of the reasons we divide it that way is because it's impossible to harmonize all of the data on the return of Christ. In the rapture, he comes in the air, but in the second heaven, he comes to the earth. You can see all the Bible verses in parenthesis. In the rapture, he comes for his saints. In the second coming, he comes with his saints. The rapture is a blessing. The second coming is a judgment. The rapture will only affect the Christians. The second coming will affect believers and unbelievers on the earth simultaneously. Jesus will rescue believing Israel, and he'll bring wrath on the unbelievers in the world at that time. The rapture is only for the Christian. So in that sense, I guess it's invisible. No one can see it except the church-age believer. But the second coming is will be visible to the whole world. Every eye will see it. The rapture is announced by an archangel. The second coming will be announced by myriads of angels. The rapture is a resurrection. It's where we get our resurrected bodies. The second advent, there's no immediate resurrection mentioned. The rapture is a rescue operation for the church. The second coming is a rescue operation for the nation of Israel. So when you look at verse 7, and a lot of people try to fudge on this, because of a big problem that I'll mention in a second, they try to make this a rapture passage. But this is not a rapture passage. This is a second advent passage. Look at how it's described here. To give relief to you who are afflicted, as well as when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Verse 8, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey 
the gospel of Christ. Verse 9, these he will, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, does that language fit the left side of the screen or the right hand side of the screen? I mean, clearly this is not a blessing. This is something destructive and horrific. It doesn't fit the left side of the screen. It fits the right hand side of the screen. So this is not a rapture passage. This is a second coming passage. And what Paul, I think, is saying here is to the Thessalonians, be comforted because you're on the winning side of history. God is going to deal with your persecutors and he will deal with them when he comes back in his second advent. Now, if you've been around um, Christianity for a little while, you know that the timing of the rapture is not something everyone agrees on. People have been fighting like cats and dogs about this probably for the last 150 years. The view at the top is the viewpoint we represent that the church is going to be raptured before the tribulation starts. The second view, Dan, is called mid-tribulationalism, where the church is going to be raptured out midway through the tribulation. The third view, Dan, is called post-tribulationalism. The church is going to be raptured out at the end of the tribulation. And then there's another one that basically says we're going to be raptured out roughly three-quarters into the tribulation. Now, focus here just for a minute on the third one from the top, second one from the bottom, post-tribulationalism. Verse 7 is their favorite verse. I mean, they've got it on all their cars. They've got it on their refrigerator at home. You know, they don't even send out Isaiah 7, verse 14 at Christmas. They send out verse 7. I mean, they are so thrilled with this verse because in their minds it proves post-tribulationalism because Paul specifically says that you will not be relieved of suffering until the manifestation of the mighty angels, blazing fire, etc., at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. And post-tribulationalists will say, oh, all you guys teaching this pre-tribulational rapture, you haven't interacted with verse 7, because verse 7 says you don't get relief until the end. And you're saying you're going to be raptured out at least seven years before. So, you know, it's kind of interesting. They'll, they'll like, show up at your conferences and they'll, they'll show you this verse, and I guess they expect you to just say, yeah, you're right, I'm a post-trib. Let's shut the whole conference down. And so, so they have this sort of attitude that it's like game, set, match, verse 7. I mean, very clearly you don't get relief until the end, and you're claiming we get relief before the seven years start. So let me just give you some representative quotes from scholars that, say this, uh, Douglas Moo. Uh, in fact, when I was in seminary, you know, I was a reading pre-tribulationalist and I had a fellow that was in our kind of group and he said, well, you need to read Moo. And he, he just kept pointing his finger at me saying, Moo, like he was a, a cow or something, Moo. And I said, well, what does Moo say? You need to read. He wouldn't tell me. He just said, you need to read Moo. And the problem is I was too busy to read Moo at the time. I was trying to graduate. So 20 years later, uh, I've read Moo. And I say to Moo, you know, boo-hoo, because I don't think what Moo says here is so uh, persuasive. But here's Doug Moo. He says in 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 5 through 7, Paul appears to provide strong support for the view that believers will not be raptured until the parousia, that just means coming, at the end of the tribulation period. For there can be no doubt that verses 7 and 8, Paul depicts this coming in glory. 
which he characterizes as the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Now, I agree with him at this point. This is not a rapture passage, and relief won't be given until the second advent, which is at the end of the tribulation period. But Douglas Moo says, yet it is at this time that believers who are suffering tribulation will be given rest. In other words, it is only at a post-tribulational advent that believers experience deliverance from the sufferings of this age. You're not going to be rescued out seven years before beforehand, before the seven-year tribulation period. The Bible says you're only going to be given rest or relief at the end because this is a second advent passage. So game, set, match, it's all over. Post-tribulationalism wins. Here's another guy by the name of William Bell. His dissertation was entitled A Critical Evaluation of the Pre-Tribulational Rapture. Uh, I spoke at a church years ago, and some guy almost tackled me. And I'm pretty big, so it was quite an effort on his part, you know. And he, he says, there's other views, and you need to read Bell. So Moo and Bell. So let's ring bell here a little bit. And it says the passage would seem to be fatal of a pre-tribulational rapture. Paul explicitly states that the hope of the Thessalonian believers is the glorious second advent of Christ, at which time they will receive rest from their afflictions. If the rapture as a separate event is indeed the blessed hope of the Christian rather than the second advent, this passage becomes inexplicable. Uh, here's Robert Gundry, who basically wrote a whole book against pre-tribulationalism. And this is his favorite passage. He says, the resultant difficulty for pre-tribulationalism is that Paul places the release of Christians from persecution at the post-tribulational return of Christ to judge unbelievers, whereas, according to pre-tribulationalism, this release will occur seven years earlier. So how would I answer that as a pre-tribulationalist? I mean, Paul is saying we don't get release and relief until the end. And I'm saying, no, you get release and relief through the rapture before the tribulation uh, period commences. In way of response, I would say the rapture, as wonderful as it is, is not going to fix every problem. Satan is still running the world system on the earth even though we're raptured in heaven. So when I'm raptured in heaven, um, prior to the seven-year tribulation period, I'm relieved from persecution. But it doesn't relieve me from the fact that Satan is still running planet Earth. And so the cry of the church-age believer at the rapture will be for God to return, Jesus Christ, and establish his kingdom depose Satan, that's when the times of refreshing will come. Acts 3.19, therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now that's the coming of the kingdom, not the rapture. Acts 3.21, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from ancient times. So times of refreshing and the period of restoration of all things is not the rapture, it's the kingdom. So once the rapture happens, the times of refreshing still haven't come yet. And the period of the restoration of all things has not yet come come yet. So I'm in heaven praising the Lord because I've escaped the tribulation. But at the same time, I'm still praying to the Lord, we need total relief from this problem. And that relief won't happen until the end of the tribulation. See that? The Bible is very clear that the kingdom of God would not materialize until the end of the tribulation. 
So I could be in the presence of the Lord pre-tribulation and not yet experience total relief from all afflictions. Because there's a problem of justice on my mind here. Yeah, Lord, I've escaped the tribulation period, but there's a big problem you need to fix that hasn't been fixed yet, and it won't be fixed until at least seven years later. So what I'm showing you how to do is to harmonize pre-tribulationalism with verse 7. The exact same thing happens with the martyrs in seal judgment number 5. When we read about seal judgment number five, we see massive martyrdoms. They are killed. Their souls are portrayed as being under the altar in heaven. And they're in the presence of the Lord. They have escaped through martyrdom. More persecution. And yet what's on their minds? They're not saying to themselves, well, our presence with the Lord has fixed all problems. Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11 explains what they're saying. How long, O Lord, now these are people in God's presence. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? There was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer. In other words, the martyr's presence in the Lord has not solved all their problems. The rapture, as wonderful as it is, doesn't fix all the problems. When the rapture occurs, we will be praising the Lord because we've escaped the tribulation period. But we're saying to the Lord in prayer, all the problems aren't going to be fixed. All the problems aren't going to be fixed until you come back to the earth and establish your kingdom and depose Satan. So I'm praying for that to happen. And that's why as a pre-raptured saint, I will not experience total relief until the end of the tribulation because this problem of injustice hasn't been fixed. Even though I'm very happy to be in the presence of the Lord. Now, if the martyrs who are in the presence of the Lord, fifth seal judgment, can think that way and pray that way, why can't a pre-tribulational raptured saint think that way and pray that way? This is how you can be a pre-tribulationalist and still understand that total relief hasn't transpired yet. It's transpired for me because I'm not being persecuted anymore, but it hasn't been, has not transpired for planet Earth yet. What, what's happened with the martyrs fifth seal judgment is what's going to happen with us. That's how you can read verse seven, believe verse seven, and still hold to a pre-tribulational rapture. So what's kind of interesting about this argument is the post-tribulationalists kind of act like nobody's ever dealt with this problem before. I mean, they'll, they'll kind of corner you with their passage. And they really haven't read enough of our guys to know that this has been explained like a long time ago. This is one of the frustrations of dealing with people out there with different perspectives. It's like we read them but they haven't taken the time to read us. Charles Ryrie, in a 1981 book, A Pre-Tribulationalist, the title of his book is What You Should Know About the Rapture, already explained this. He, he explained exactly what it is I, I tried to explain earlier. So he's answering post-tribulationalists who are saying relief won't happen until the end. And he's explaining how that could also fit a pre-tribulationalist understanding. He says, if death or the rapture brings release from persecution, why should believers be concerned with this future vindication? Because the case against 
persecutors cannot be closed until Christ is vindicated and righteousness prevails. Persecution may cease when death occurs, but the case against the persecutors is not closed until they are judged. And believers are concerned not only about personal relief, but vindication, justice. Now watch this. Notice a biblical example of that principle here. He's illustrating it through what the martyrs in the fifth seal judgment in the presence of the Lord will say. Notice a biblical, notice a biblical example of that principle here. Hear the tribulation martyrs in heaven before the tribulation crying out for vindication. Revelation 6 verses 9 through 11. When will you settle the score against those who killed us? They ask. Of course, they have already obtained release through physical death and are in heaven. Yet they are concerned about vindication. And the Lord replies that they will have to wait a little longer for the vindication until others are also martyred on the earth. In other words, the tribulation martyrs with all of their problems, personal problems solved, understand that the ultimate problem of injustice on the earth hasn't been fixed and they're crying out to God. That's your posture once you're raptured. Your personal problems are fixed. But you still see the injustice being perpetrated on on the earth because Satan hasn't been deposed yet and you're praying thy kingdom come. And you're recognizing that your ultimate sense of justice won't be pacified or appeased until Jesus returns to establish his kingdom. Yes, you're raptured to heaven, but you're recognizing that final relief won't happen until seven years later. I hope that today made some kind of sense. Um, And I think it's a little late to do verse 8. Amen. So that's three verses, five, six, seven. That's not bad. So let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word, grateful for your truth. Help us to rightfully handle and divide your your word in the end times. I pray you'll bless the main service that follows. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and God's people said. Happy uh, mini intermission.